Now, I am curious, if I were to ask you to define Christianity, I wonder what you would say. I wonder how you might define it. I want you to think in your mind about what is your definition of Christianity? Somebody says to you, not are you a Christian, but what is Christianity? What is it? What would you say? Would you start talking about things like believing in God or going to church or reading your Bible or praying or loving your neighbor? What is it? Well, let me ask you a, a different question. Will we practice Christianity in heaven? Do you think that God has us doing something here? Do you think God's called us to something here that is different from what we will be doing in eternity? Is there any is there anything that you can think of in this life that if you were if you knew you were going to do in the future and you devoted yourself to prepare for this thing that you were going to do in the future can you think of anything in this world that the preparation for the experience the preparation would not look like the experience? I don't think you can. In order to prepare for something in the future, whatever you're going to do to prepare for it is going to begin to look more and more like what the thing is that you're preparing for. So my question again is, are we going to practice Christianity in heaven? What's that going to be like? And I would say that depends on how you define Christianity. And the chances are the way most people define Christianity, that will not be practiced in heaven. That will not be. So how you define Christianity... Is going to determine the, uh, everything about how you prepare for what you think you're going to be doing. How you, how you understand, how you filter through all the things in the Scripture about where we're headed in eternity and what that's going to be like. What if we saw Christianity... Not as something we do. But as something we are. What if we defined Christianity this way? Here's a working definition for you to write in on your listening guide. Christianity. 
a life made possible by God's grace, empowered by God's Spirit, modeled by God's Son. Paul has been pressing us in this section of 2 Corinthians to examine our understanding of the way the spiritual realm around us works, the way that people uh, operate in Christ, the way people come into a relationship with Christ, what happens when a person comes into a relationship with Christ. What is this all about? Paul's pressing our understanding. He's correcting some of our our false notions because the same false gospels that have been impacting Corinth are impacting the church today. And the impact is great. It's eternally great if for a person who's separated from God, doesn't know God, hasn't been born again, who is who believes a false gospel. But it's also it's it's also tremendously detrimental to a saved, born again person who believes a false gospel, who has been indoctrinated into some false way of thinking, who doesn't understand. character and nature of God. So this is God's plan to prepare us for eternity by making a a life possible through His grace, by empowering us through His Spirit to do the things modeled by His Son. God's plan to make this a reality is called the New Covenant. That's what Paul's been talking about. So look in 2 Corinthians 3, and let's remember where we were last week. We talked about verse 12 and following where the Bible says, Therefore, since we have such hope because of this new covenant, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, the veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So here's what we talked about. We talked about how no person is ever saved, ever, ever, until the Holy Spirit removes the veil. That the Bible is very clear, John chapter 6, no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. But then we moved into this different conversation that challenged some of you to think a little bit differently and to think about what you believe. We talked about how When the veil is lifted, we're not forced to come. See, the Bible is very clear. It says when one turns. We talked about how a lifted veil is an invitation, not an obligation. It doesn't say say when one is turned. It says when one turns. So now, after that conversation, 
Paul explains, well, what happens when one turns to the Lord and the veil is taken away? What happens? What are, what are we doing? All of us in the room that are followers of Jesus who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, well, what are we doing today? And if we have confusion about this, what could be more tragic than that? So Paul's going to teach us about this process. The theological word is sanctification. Sanctification is the call of Jesus to live with him as his apprentice in his kingdom. Technically, if you look in a theology book or a systematic theology book, sanctification literally means to be set apart and to be made holy. That's what it means. But I don't think as a working definition that's going to do you a lot of good to correct some of the wrong thinking. I want you to understand that it's the call of Jesus to live with him as his apprentice in his kingdom. That's what it is. Now look at how Paul brings us to this understanding. The next verse, chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, in these two verses, what you have is this amazing, concise description of what this life is all about. But, of course, it doesn't do you any good if you don't understand what we talked about last week. And then you'll need to hear what we talk about next week in order to put all the pieces together. But here is the description. So let's go through it quickly. Now, the Spirit of the Lord, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty to do what? Liberty from what? Freedom for what? Freedom, what do you mean freedom? What does that mean? Freedom, where the Spirit is at work, Paul is saying, you have the freedom, the opportunity to be who you were meant to be. Apart from the presence of the Spirit, all you have is the ministry of death. So Paul's saying something new has happened. The old covenant showed us what we could not be. The new covenant empowers us to be conformed into the image of Christ. Now understand something. This is a very perplexing statement in verse 17. If you understand the, the, the wording, especially in the original language, let me help you. In the Roman Empire, one in five people were slaves. And in the Greek language, the word for slave is doulos. And that is, so when, you're, when you read the word slave, especially in the book of Romans, uh, that is the Greek word doulos. But now there's a word that is used in the New Testament to describe a slave owner. The one who owns the slave. The one who, uh, the, the one who, to whom the slave belongs, the one who has the power over the slave in deciding 
It's a word that means master. It's a word that describes the one that would tell the slave what to do and when to do it and how to do it. And it's the Greek word kurios. And the only reason you should care about that is because that word is translated in the New Testament as capital L-O-R-D. So what you have in verse 17 is now the kurios is the spirit. And where the spirit of the kurios is, there is liberty. That doesn't make any sense. The Bible is saying that the master, the slave owner, is the spirit. And where the spirit is, the master is. And where the master is, there is liberty. Which should make you think, well, what? And the reason we think that is because our idea of freedom is so twisted. We think freedom is I can go where I want. I can do what I please. I am in control. Why would God give you that? You have that now apart from him. That's what got us in the shape we're in. That's why we needed a savior. So what kind of liberty are we getting? See, that's the Bible has a completely different definition of freedom. The Bible defines freedom as the ability to live by God's power. That's what this verse means. The ability to live by God's power or the opportunity to live by God's power. Romans chapter 6, listen closely. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin. Now, there's two choices in obedience, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. Verse 17, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which was delivered to you, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You became liberated. You became able to experience true freedom. So what the Bible is teaching is that the freest person on earth is the person who obeys God. That's not the way we think about freedom. See, if the Spirit of the Lord is not in you, you do not have freedom. Because why? Because you're still under the requirement of perfection and its condemnation. Which is exactly what Paul's been saying in all the preceding verses. But here's the million dollar question for us. So now that I've been set free from sin, is that the end of the story? Is that, I've been set free from sin, done, finished, good, great, awesome, end of story. How does this work? What does that mean? 
Paul explains how this freedom works. Verse 18, but we all, not all people, we, believers, Christians, people who are saved, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So believers, there's no more veil for believers. Remember verse 14, because the veil is taken away in Christ. So as I live in Christ, if I could look into a spiritual mirror, what would I see? What would I see? This is what Paul's pressing us into. Moses comes down from the mountain. His face is glowing. This is what all this Moses talk is about in this section. His face is glowing. You know this from the story in the book of Exodus on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. And I've been pointing out to you how every detail in that story is very important, how it relates to what is coming in the new covenant. So God did then very specific things for now. God's doing now very specific things for eternity because this is who God is. We shouldn't be surprised by this. So he comes down, his face is glowing. Did God just decide to make Moses' face glow? Is that how that happened? God waved his finger, made his face glow. He thought it would be a cool trick. Wanted to freak everybody out at the down, down at the bottom. I mean, is that how that happened? I mean, what happened? How, what, it, what led to Moses' face glowing? If that's so important, well, then let's understand it. Let's think through it. His face was glowing because he got close to God. So it would be safe to say God's glow got on Moses. Would you agree? So what happened. The glow of God got on Moses. All right. And what Paul is talking about here, we with unveiled face, what he's leading us to an understanding is that you can't spend time with the glowing one and not shine. That's what he wants us to see. It's very important to understand This glow on Moses' face. And every time up until now that Paul has talked about this glow on Moses' face and this veil, and he's used all of this uh, to illustrate to us what uh, spiritual life and growth is all about, he always mentions the fact that the glow on Moses' face is fading. Fading. He even tells us that the reason that Moses put a veil on was to conceal the fact that it was fading. It was fading. It was temporary. Moses didn't glow the rest of his life. But we all, verse 18, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now, did Moses behold the glory of the Lord as in a mirror? 
Or was he, was he like right up, you know, face to face with God, nose to nose? Come on, turn it on full beam. Or was he in the cleft of a rock just getting a little glimpse, right? Now Paul says, our face is unveiled, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So in Christ, what about us? We're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So something's happening. We're being transformed. Again, I wouldn't tell you this if it wasn't important. In the Greek language, there's two words that could be translated. There's a, there's a word we often translate change. Alasso, it's the Greek word that means to change something. So like I change my socks. But that's not the word that's translated here. It doesn't say we're being changed into the same image. The word is metamorpho, which you all would recognize, where we get our word metamorphosis. So we're being not changed like you change your socks, but we're being changed into something that we were not before. I used to be this, but now I'm this. Metamorphosis. Now, it's important to understand. Paul doesn't say again. It's always good to understand what what the Bible doesn't say. Doesn't say we are transforming ourselves. It's not what it says. A lot of us believe the false gospel that If I go to church, if I pray, if I read my Bible, if I listen to Christian music, if I wear Christian t-shirts, if I hang around Christian people, if I do do this and this and this and this, if I do this constantly, and if I do it well, then I'll be transformed. I'll transform myself. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says being transformed, meaning I am being transformed changed by something other than me. There's an external force transforming us. That's important to understand. It's also important, here's another false gospel. Many people live as if it says, we have been transformed. Matter of fact, I'd say that would be the most prevalent false gospel in this room right now. Your life may illustrate that what you believe is that you've been transformed. But that's not what it says. See, if it said that, then... It would be completed. You would be done. Whatever it is that God intended for you to be, you would be. So you wouldn't sin anymore. You would follow all the rules. You would listen to your wife. But clearly, that ain't what it says. 
It says being transformed. So it indicates what? There's a process, right? That we're in the midst of a process. Something beyond us, outside of us, is changing us into, from something that we are to something that we are not, right? Something we will be, different. It's a metamorphosis. It's an, out, it's an outside power. We're not doing it to ourselves. It's a process. It's an ongoing process. It's not completed. Being transformed, and then it says, into the same image from glory to glory. So from one level of glory to another, or from, a, in, from, from this ever-increasing amount. So what Paul is doing is he's, he's describing to us the process of sanctification. That sanctification, this process of becoming holy... It's a progression. See, we know verses like Philippians 1.6, where Paul says, well, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But what shocks me is that people have known this verse all their life, but they don't know what it is. What is he bringing to completion? What does it look like? What do you mean? What is he doing? You, you, you have to be able to articulate this. If he's doing this, if he's, if he's bringing this to completion, what are we transformed into? See, how do we even know how we're doing it if we don't even know what it, what it is, what it looks like? What does it look like? How do you, how do you gauge where you are in the process of transformation. False doctrine number three. Maybe you're here this morning, and the truth is, is that the way you gauge where you or someone else is, primarily other people, on the pro- in the process of transformation is, how are they doing in following the rules? I'll be here after the service for you to, please, I'm begging you to come up front and show me that in the Bible. I cannot wait for that moment. It's going to be amazing. Because unless you've written your own Bible, you're never going to find that. So again, I'm back to my question. Well, how do you... How, well, where are you? How do you know? How do you gauge? How do you tell? What, how, we, where, what are we just... Well, if we don't know that, then here's what we must be doing. We must be drifting. We must just be drifting along. Which would explain why it's so prevalent... For us to get mixed up in the routine things of the day, just caught up in just going to work and paying the bills and trying to do this and mowing the grass and na 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 and all these mundane things. And really the only time we think about the things that really matter the most is when somebody presses you to think about them. I mean, let's be honest, if I wasn't standing here and you weren't sitting there and we weren't having this conversation. You'd probably be thinking about 
football games that are going to come on today or prepping for the hunting season that's about to come or worrying about your grass or what color are you going to paint a room or what's the homework we got to get done before this week or right because we don't even know what's going on we just kind of drifting along we we can't explain anything we can't articulate things we just we have ideas but where do we get them where do they come from and i'm telling you we base how we're doing How well we follow the rules. I got news for you. Moses wasn't glowing because of something he did. He was glowing because of who was near him. That's why he was glowing. His glowing was not a result I understand something. Moses wasn't glowing because of performance. He was glowing because of proximity. That's why he was glowing. So wouldn't it be safe to say, based on the way that the Bible describes the glowing of Moses and the conversation between him and God and him being in the cleft of the rock and God saying, look, you're not going to be able to take the full force or it's going to scorch you into pieces, so you're going to have to get behind this rock and I'm just going to show you just a little tiny glimmer. Wouldn't it be, couldn't we, based on that information, come to the conclusion that, well, it would be safe to say that the When it comes to the glowing and the glory of the Lord, and if it wasn't performance but it was proximity, then we could say the longer one lingers, in the proximity of the glowing one, the brighter the shine, right? See, when it comes to the glory of God, which is what this glowing represents. So, so the purpose and plan of God is that, the, is that the, the longer we live, the longer we, every day as a Christian, we get a little more glow. So day after day after day after day, there's a progression. There's a process. God, God wants us to glow. He wants us to glow mightily. He wants His glory to radiate from us, from His believers. But in order to get from where we are at salvation to where He wants us to be, well, that depends on how many days we have, which we don't know, only He knows. But here's what we know, that every day is an opportunity to spend in proximity. 
Right? Yeah. See, proximity in the Bible equals intensity. When it comes to the glory of God, that's what we're talking about. So, so this, this process, this new covenant, all these, we have all these terms for it, which are good and fine. That way we can understand what we're talking about. But I don't want you to get lost in the terminology. I want you to get the concept. I want you to understand what's going on. He says that we're being transformed into the same image. Same as what? But remember the context of what he's been talking about. This glory, this veil, Moses, this whole... So there's liberty where the Spirit of the Lord is. So now we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Hmm. What image? Remember how all this started? Genesis chapter 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. It started in the garden with people created by God in the image of God. Perfect image bearers in perfect fellowship with God. Now, understand something. This is where we're headed in eternity. So step one is, step one is the law. The law comes into play so that we can see that we're not all right. So that we can see that we can't make ourselves all right. So that we can see that we have a need for something beyond ourselves. And without that need, we're doomed to death. There's no hope or chance apart from God doing something. Then the new covenant comes along and says, now... What illustrated your need now, here is the need. Because it wouldn't do you any good if God showed up with the new covenant and said, Here's, here it is, if you didn't know you needed it. Right? So first God has to show us that we need it. Then he gives us what we need. So because he's such a good God. And what is it that we need? Well, we need what we lost in Eden. Because that's where we're headed is back to where that was. God's fixing what has been broken. He's restoring what has been lost. That's the whole process that's going on here. So understand, salvation ignites the process of mending what was lost in the garden. That's what happens. You see, all the law could do is teach us What's wrong? But it offers no solution. Then salvation comes and ignites, brings liberty. Brings liberty to, to do what? 
What is freedom? The liberty to do what? To obey God. That's what Paul says in Romans over and over and over. What could we not do in the old covenant? We could see what we were supposed to do, but we couldn't do it. So then God provides in the new covenant what you saw but you couldn't do. Now you have the ability to do. You have the power to do it. It's the process of mending. And every day we live in this new covenant is the process of mending. See, a couple weeks ago, I started explaining this to you as if by thinking about it as, as we're all sailboats. That God created us as fully equipped sailboats. For some reason, it just seems like the easiest way to explain this. You're a fully equipped sailboat. You have everything you need to be able to sail except wind. What good is a sailboat without wind? Pointless. It just drifts. You can't you, you can't make wind. You can't make wind blow. You can't. There's nothing you could do. See, Second Peter chapter 1 says that we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so when the veil is lifted and we have an opportunity, it's not an obligation, it's an opportunity. The veil lifts. We hear the gospel. We, we then... Respond to the gospel. We turn to the Lord. See, the Bible doesn't say that we're turned. We turn. So what happens is, is that when that happens, when we respond to Christ, then the wind, because the word translated Holy Spirit in the New Testament is the Greek word for wind. The wind of the Holy Spirit begins to blow in our life. So for the very first time now, we have the capacity to sail. See, we, we had the equipment, but we didn't have any wind. So it didn't matter what we did. See, before Christ, you're, we're all paddling with our hands. We're, we're trying to make oars. We're trying to come up with all this stuff, but it's just futile. But at salvation, the wind comes inside of us. God's breath comes within us. Now there's wind. So for the first time, we can sail. But I want you to understand, in these two verses, what Paul's showing us is that when you're sailing, I I know some of you have never even been on a sailboat, and I'm sorry about that. That really makes me sad. Because you don't know what you're missing. But I want you to understand something. When you sail, you're not passive. Maybe the reason you've never been on a sailboat is because you think that you just sit there. Well, that's not what you do. Sailing's not 
not passive. When you're on a sailboat, you're active. You're adjusting the sails. You're steering with the rudders. You're watching for other boats. You're, there's all sorts of things that are going on as the wind is blowing. You're, you're maneuvering around to capture as much wind as you can. The key is to understanding sailing is that when you sail, you're active, but you're not in control. See, sailing is about harnessing something you don't control. It's about getting as much of something you don't control as possible. You have no control over the wind, but you can, as much wind is there, you, you can do things to grab as much of it as you can grab. But you always have to remember that you're totally and utterly dependent upon the wind. You always have to remember what it was like before there was wind. You got to remember about the, the, those old days when you put the sail up, put the sail down, do this, fiddle with everything constantly. And, but there's no wind and no, nothing ever changed. And you'd move stuff around and do stuff. It, nothing worked. You got to remember that we are totally and utterly dependent on the wind. Because without the wind, all we can do is drift. But you see, a sailboat is meant to sail. That's why it's called a sailboat. It's not called a drift boat. It's called a sailboat. Because that's what it was made to do. It was made to do something. It was, it was made, it was designed to operate by something that it can't generate. See, a sailboat is built dependent on something that it can't control. Jesus, he said in John chapter 3, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. And then he says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Right there, I'm like, we're sailboats. The Spirit blows wherever it wants. It's completely out of our control. But if we catch it, it can take us to places we never imagined. We could see things that we otherwise could never see. We could, we could go places we otherwise could never go. We could experience things we could only wonder about and dream about. As you think about what Christianity is. You think about your life and you think about... What you do and how you decide what you're going to do and not do. And what do you invest your time in and your resources in and your energy in. And your I just want you to remember that we can't control the wind, but we can adjust our sail. See, the crazy thing about this journey called Christianity is... 
is that I don't know how to explain this any other way but to say that God gives us as much wind as we're willing to harness. And in a few weeks, we're going to get to what happens at the end of this journey. Read ahead in 2 Corinthians. There's this moment called the judgment seat of Christ. And between this journey and eternity, we're all going to pass through that moment. And that moment's going to be really difficult for some. Because the realization that you could have had all the wins you wanted. You had an opportunity to just harness incredible amounts of wind. But you drifted. It's going to be sad for the people that aren't at that judgment seat because they never experienced any wind at all. But what about the people who experience the wind? And just let it blow by. 